Welcome to the Sports Spectrum Podcast, where faith and sports collide. Here's your host, Jason Romano. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Sports Spectrum Podcast. I am Jason Romano, and it is great to have you with us today. Last time on Episode 3, we spoke with former NFL defensive back term pastor Derwin Gray, and wow, such a great interview and his testimony on how he was introduced to the Christian faith from a naked preacher was one you did not want to miss. I mean, it's just a crazy story. If you haven't heard the conversation yet, please go back and take a listen. I think you'll really, I think you'll really like this one. And of course, as always, if you can, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It does help, and we would really appreciate hearing what you think of the show, the feedback, and all that. It's really been a blast to be a part of. Okay, today's guest is someone I've known for a long time. I want to get right to this interview. I first got whim of her story back in 2011 when she was still a, a college student at LSU playing soccer for the Tigers, and her name is Mo Isom, and she has an incredible story. Her new book, Wreck My Life, Journeying from Broken to Bold, is a New York Times bestseller, and she's now sharing her story around the world and has been an inspiration to many people, including myself. I am super excited to have her on the podcast. Enjoy this conversation with my friend, author and speaker, Mo Isom. How are you, Mo? I am great. I'm excited to be on. Thanks it's, for yeah. thanks for having me. This is fun. This is awesome. It's so great to have you. And I, I I think we met somewhere around six or seven years ago with some mutual friends on social media. I think you were still at the time at LSU. And, and look at you now, New York Times bestselling author. How cool is that? Oh, it's just, it's really been a whirlwind. My husband and I often say it's like drinking water through a fire hose. It seems like finished school, moved back home, sort of started ministry and then met Jeremiah, got married, get pregnant. We're writing a book and traveling the country. And it's just one thing after another, but it's been um, quite the adventure. So how do you find time to just rest? How does that, and we'll talk about all the things you're doing and sort of your journey in a second, but how do you just find time to rest with all of that on your plate? Yeah, that's um, an awesome question and one I'm still trying to figure out myself. <laughs> um, we, I don't know, that there, there's scripture that says, um, be still and know that I am God. And it was a piece of scripture that really drew me near to God in a season of chaos and adversity in my life. And it's one that I just really try to hold on to. And it's sort of a, a an aggregation of all the small moments. There's no big chunks of rest in our in our schedule currently. But there are a lot of, and in most people's schedules, I feel like, but there are a lot of small moments in the day um, that we can pay attention to and not miss and and rest in. And, you know, small moments through our weeks or those night times coming together with our spouse or just the sweet moments with our kids. Um, and it's those times where I just disconnect from the world. I The phone's away, you know, the the to-do list is off my mind and I try to be really, really present with my family. And those are the times where I feel the most refueled and where I get the best rest. And then, um, on top of that, I just sleep really hard at night. <laughs> well, that's good wise <laughs> advice right there. Just being present and sleep hard. I like that. Um, yeah. Mo, your story is such a fascinating one. And, you know, like I said, I've known you for a while, so I know it, but I believe a lot of our listeners, um, really don't know your story. So I, I really want to just go back to the beginning and your upbringing. Um, myself being a dad of a teenage daughter, I know what that relationship is like, father-daughter. What was it like for you growing up and the relationship with your parents and specifically with your dad? Yeah, it was um, it was amazing, really. I mean, my parents were 
wonderful, wonderful support of all that I was interested in or passionate about. Soccer was a big one of those things. And um, my parents were just in my corner. They they really did an amazing job pouring in um, just support and love and encouragement. Um, at the same time, though, I was, I was uh, being brought up in the church as well. I mean, they were both believers. And um, I kind of call it a faith by inheritance. I, I was a Christian because my parents were Christians. You know, I was going to church because my parents were in church. And um, I really worked and cared so deeply about making them proud because they were so supportive and so amazing and so loving. And so they were my, you know, most clear picture of love of the father's love, you know, of this God who loves us. We hear about my, my dad really was my most clear picture of that. Um, which was amazing, but probably wasn't a very fair weight to put on my dad's shoulders, whether he knew that he carried it or not, because my dad was human. And, um, you know, from, from even an early age, there were, uh, some things that he was struggling with. I, I dive into it in my book, but you know, one big thing was he, he just wrestled some with struggle with pornography. Mm. And so that really, um, I think took a toll on his soul, on his heart in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, there were times where I'd stumble in on that and there was a lot of, you know, shame and guilt. And it was suddenly a silent treatment from my dad. And, you know, I better not say anything. And, um, suddenly I'm feeling sort of the weight of someone else's sin struggle. And, loving my dad so much and wanting him to be so proud and not wanting to make him angry. And, um, you know, just different little things with sort of his moods or his tendencies, like with sports, if I was doing really, really well, there was, you know, so much love. I was dad's best girl on the front seat with him. But if I didn't play well or lost a game, there was, you know, the silent treatment or frustration from him. And, um, all of that kind of combined to really, uh, create sort of this perfect storm, I guess, in my shallow faith, my faith by inheritance versus like my own personal walk with God. Um, it just, it just combined to really create sort of this works-based mentality. So my dad's love for me was my clearest picture of God's love for me, but my dad's love at the same time was very hot and cold and it was very works-based. I do well, he loves me more. I do something wrong. I get the silent treatment, you know, he's angry and, um, that, that kind of framed my perspective of God's love for a while as, as subtle and subconscious as, you know, it could, you know, looking back, I sound so much more insightful, uh, you know, about it. I'm sure as a teenager, um, as a young teen, it was really a very subconscious thing, but it was, um, a, a clear picture for me. And so I carried a lot of that pressure from my parents, that desire for perfection. Um, it, it overlapped into a lot of different areas in my life into my faith walk. And, um, it was, it, it was a lot to navigate through for a young kid um, whose parents meant so well and, mm. and loved me so much. But um, I think somewhere along the way, it just got, it got a little messy, I guess, in my own, in my own mind, in my own heart. Mo, you, you get to LSU and play soccer at LSU. So you're obviously, you know, immensely talented as a goalkeeper, as you're going through your high school years and even your middle school years, what did you start to realize? I'm pretty, and I, obviously being humble about it, but I'm pretty good at this thing. And then when you found out and realized like this, you're better than a lot of the people that your peers that you're playing with, did, did the, the idea to want to perform well, want to achieve whatever accolades you could achieve, was that in part mm -hmm. to make your parents and specifically your dad just happy? 
Yeah, I mean, I realized very early on, and we can just, for the sake of the conversation and the wording, we can just sort of put humility to the side. I was extremely good. <laughs> I was extremely big. I yeah. was, you know, I started high school at six feet tall as a as a female, you know, as a young woman. Um, in seventh grade, I think I grew seven inches in height, actually, in one year. Wow. And so physically, I was very equipped um, to play the position well as a goalkeeper. And then just drive, just focus, just sort of this competitiveness that existed in me, um, it just, just really ex- excelled me into, into, um, a lot of success. And at the same time, you know, compelled me into a deep desire to be great. Yes. There was very much the desire for that to make my dad proud, you know, to mm. impress him and to show him that I was giving it everything I had. And, you know, that I was, that I was, um, excelling. But like when I was, gosh, I think I decided full time to be a goalkeeper at about 11 or 12, which is pretty young, or at least it was then nowadays. Oh my gosh, kids are committing to colleges and like middle school. I don't know what's going on right. <laughs> at the time at the time to decide to be a goalkeeper exclusively at 11 was very young to fully commit to a position. But I just knew it was a niche that I thrived in. And so I started sneaking into 17 and 18 year old boy practices, goalkeeper training sessions. And like the first few times the coach would catch me at warmups and kick me out, you know, and then the next time maybe he'd humor me a little bit longer and then kick me out. And then finally he realized I wasn't going away and I was just continuing to put myself out there. And so he let me train and I train, you know, with 18 year old guys as a 12 year old girl, um, and, and just raise the bar of competition. So there was this inner competitiveness, but there was also this layer of, my dad loved it. He was mm. so proud seeing me, you know, seeing this inner drive and seeing me push myself and excel that way and, and really just be very naturally gifted at something. Um, and I think that desire to make him proud, to keep him proud, to keep pushing the envelope, to do more, to be better, it, it became sort of a control issue for me. Um, this was one thing that was like my thing, you know, that I knew I was great at. And, um, I wanted to control the success in it every, every way that I could. And, you know, when I hit high school, there were sort of a number of things that I wanted to control similarly and realized very quickly, it just happened to be this transition in life that I realized I just didn't have as much control as I hoped. I was kind of trying to author my own success and my own story. And, you know, we just hit seasons of life where, There are girls or there are people who are bigger, faster, stronger. You know, there are people who are smarter, who are more equipped to get the job promotion, you know, whatever it may be. We just sort of sometimes hit seasons of life where we're humbled a bit and um, humility and control issues don't always (laughs) mesh well. (laughs) And so I hit a season in high school where there was a number of things I wanted to control. I, I wasn't able to. And it really rocked foundationally my identity because I had been, you know, the best athlete and I had been, you know, all of these, these titles, these things that were suddenly kind of in question. And when that control began to slip away, um, I was desperate for, for something, anything that I could still, you know, be in control of. And that actually led me, um, it's a pretty big part of my testimony. It led me into a pretty vicious, um, identity struggle that manifested into an eating disorder, um, that really 
grabbed a hold of me for, for four years through high school. And I struggled with, you know, keeping this mask on and, and letting people see what I wanted them to see on the outside and continually trying to make my dad so proud and so impressed. But really, I was very, very sick on the inside and I was compromising so much to keep the people around me, you know, impressed to look like I was still in control. I was losing control in a desperate effort to look like I was still in control. Mm. I think that's such an issue, too, with young uh, teenagers and people that I've encountered specifically at church and even with my daughter and her peers, the, the masking, the, the putting on this sort of facade of just trying to look cool or act cool or be okay. And then inside it's complete emptiness. Yeah. I just, we're, we're in such a fake it till you make it culture. Yeah. It's like with social media, with, you know, the impression we want to make on everyone, we really live in this culture that praises, like, just put your best foot forward, put your best things out there, show us the best you have and get the likes and get the affirmation and get the praise. But if you have messy stuff or if you have hard stuff or not such impressive stuff, just deal with it on your own. You know, it's like kind of keep that stuff in the darkness. This is what our culture is really, um, promoting whether we realize it or not through social media, through peer pressure, through just, um, day-to-day life. And that's not just for young girls, even that is, you know, sort of across the board, I think. Um, and it's, it's really tough because I don't know, it's easy to, you want to play the game. Like you want to put all your best stuff forward, but you know, scripture actually calls something very contradictory out of us. It says, um, that we should actually boast in our weaknesses. If we're going to boast about anything, boast in our weaknesses so that we can point to the glory of the cross. And, um, that's hard for especially a young person to get. And so, yeah, I I see a lot of, um, millennials wrestling with this fake it till you make it world, keep your broken stuff in the darkness and failing to see that everyone around them is wrestling with broken things in the darkness too. And if we have the courage to share the hard stuff, I think we would find so much more community in others saying, Oh my gosh, I'm wrestling with that too. You know, that's a hard thing for me too. Or, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd actually begin to do life with people versus just trying to sell people on the life we're not even really living. That's so good. That's so true. We're talking to uh, Mo Isom. She is the author of the book, Wreck My Life, Journeying from Broken to Bold here on the Sports Spectrum podcast. So Mo, on the surface, like you said, you have these masks on, all American girl headed to LSU to play soccer grows up in a seemingly normal middle-class home, then college happens, and you go through some really unspeakable pain and tragedy, but amazingly managed to come out on the other side. And you write in your book in in late 2008 that the relationship with your dad had blossomed and was so beautiful and pure, you felt humbled to be a part of it. That was your words. And that he was always there with you throughout the first year at LSU. And then 2009 happens. I want to walk through that entire year with you and have you share with our listeners what happened and and take us through that time. Let's start around New Year's of 2009. Yeah, so it had, um, like you said, my, my relationship with my dad, it was almost like our distance helped our hearts grow a little fonder. I went off to school and that, that distance was kind of good for us. Um, and it really had become this really beautiful, special relationship. Um, it had mended in a lot of ways. And um, I, I had, had gone and had competed in my freshman year at LSU and I had graduated actually a semester early. So my, my course went spring, fall versus fall, spring. So, um, my freshman year was wrapping after my freshman season 
And I went home really after that freshman year, just on cloud nine. I was just untouchable. I was a freshman all American. I was Louisiana freshman of the year, you know, SEC this, SEC that, just all these different accolades. I'd scored that freshman year like a 90 yard goal that had hit Sports Center top plays and it just sort of catapulted us, our team, into the national limelight in many ways. And it had just been this phenomenal year. My dad had been there through it all, you know, both my parents had, but. Uh, I kind of headed home for for Christmas break for yeah Thanksgiving break and uh, I'm sorry Christmas break and mm-hmm. um, I just felt like in my faith too because it's important because these things were married together the whole time sort of my you know the life I was living in this faith journey I was on in my heart but I just felt like God this is great if this is what it means to be a Christian you know I kind of had crawled out of that pit of the eating struggles I had given God a little bit of my life and you know, it's seen such blessing in return. And really my perspective of, of Christianity kind of shifted from this God in a box on Sunday, like cultural Christianity, faith by inheritance. It had shifted to, oh wait, no, no, no. God can be in every day of my life, but I give him the glory and the blessings rain down. That's how this transaction works. Like I just, I just give him the glory and all the good stuff happens. And so I was in this, you know, incomplete understanding of faith where that's what I thought. This was good. You know, this was easy. I could do this thing. A, a, a Christian life must be a, a blessed, prosperous, fruitful, you know, amazing life in right. every day. And I went home for Christmas break and one night my dad didn't come home, um, which was super weird because he was just a family man through and through. And especially when, when we were home for from college for a break. I mean, he is not home later than five 30. As soon as he could get off work and get home, he was there. Um, but one night he, he didn't come home. And, um, to make a, a long portion of, of that story short, we spent the evening, you know, trying to track him down, trying to figure out what might be going on. Um, my mom called us into the formal living room and the best way to describe what she looked like, she just looked like a marionette. She was just as pale as a ghost. And it was like, it was taking every bit of energy for her to move or speak. And she just told us that we had to find our father. And we're like, what are you talking about? What's going on? And she took us back into their bedroom. And, um, there was a a voicemail on the, on the message machine. And, um, it was my father's voice, but it wasn't my daddy. Mm. It was, it was cold and it was scared. And, he had just said he needed to drive around and clear his head and that he he loved us. And there was a love note written right beneath the phone that just said, I do love you and had his name signed. And so now we're just, you know, continuing in our confusion. My mom has sort of been able to explain there were some financial issues that came to the surface just with some tax stuff. And, um, you know, she had had a conversation with him earlier, you know, a day or two before. And he was he was just scared. Um and I think ashamed. And so we're just trying to find out where he is. <laughs> and we fell asleep that night, kind of confused what to pray. Cause I'd come off this season of highs and now suddenly there's this, you know, question mark in what's going on. And I don't know, maybe people can relate to those times where we just don't even know what words are adequate, um, or what we're even supposed to pray. Mm. And we woke up the next morning to my mom just screaming, sprinting up the steps, this sheet of paper just crackling in her hands coming up from our home office. And she's like, get in the car, get in the car, grab your shoes, grab your things, get in the car. And 
were piling into the car and start speeding around town to any place my dad might have frequented. I mean, this at this point, we're just physically looking for him. And I remembered that sheet of paper and I was just begging my mom, can I please see it? Can I see it? And she finally shoved this piece of paper into the back seat and she was like, here, read it, then help me, please help me. And I ironed out the creases in this paper and looked down and it was a suicide letter from my dad that he had emailed in the really early morning hours and um, somehow had summarized his life in four little paragraphs. And um, now our desperation became finding this man before this man gave up. Yeah, We ended up at his, his office with just lots of police officers around. He was an attorney in the area. So now you know, these weren't just police officers. These were friends. These were people who knew him trying to help us find him too. But, um, we were all in his office when, when three officers finally walked through the doors after so much noise and commotion, it's kind of like everything just went silent. And they said, um, ma'am, we found your husband. And there was this moment of unbelievable relief, um, because it was obviously messy. We didn't know what was going on and how we would, you know, deal with everything. But, there was a moment of relief there and they, they said, I'm sorry, let us clarify how uh, we found your husband's remains. Mm. So it was January 3rd, 2009, um, that my dad put a gun to his heart and pulled the trigger. And it was January 3rd, 2009 that I took off running from God. This isn't what it was supposed to look like. This isn't how my life was supposed to play out. This isn't how this faith thing was supposed to work out. Like what happened, God, to me giving you the glory and then you you look out for me, right? The blessings rained down. And I, I didn't think I was supposed to see my mom shatter and become a widow and fall to the ground and lose her best friend. I didn't think I should see my sister just break in that moment. And I, I certainly didn't think at 19 years old, I should be looking at my dad's body in a morgue table with a bullet hole in his chest. Hmm. And so I just, um, I was so angry. I was so resentful. I was so frustrated. I was so confused. I mean, you just really go numb, you go completely numb and it's just, like fight or flight mode. And I just took off running and I ran from God. I ran from the faith. I, I had to go back to school. I had to go back to LSU about two weeks after he died. How do you do that, Mo? How do you go back to school when you just go through the worst tragedy a person can go through? How do you do that? A lot of coaxing from my mom. Okay. Um, Is it almost like a release in a way to go back to school? Yeah, I think that she knew and I think a, a part of me deep down knew that as soon as I could get back to normalcy in in at least my day to day, like I loved the sport I played. I loved, you know, being a collegiate athlete. I think that she really felt first off that my dad would want me to continue my my college education and my athletic career. Yeah. Um, obviously she did too, but I think she knew that deep down, if, if, and I knew deep down, if I stayed home, I would be wallowing. You know, I just, you're, you're, sometimes it helps to, to remove yourself from the intensity of the environment. Um, and I think in a way, I think she kind of hoped it would distract me a little bit, you know, just from the intensity of what a young heart really by design shouldn't have to feel the weight of and, and the magnitude of. And, um, I just think we all kind of knew that would be best as hard as it was going to be. And so I, I mustered up the strength to head back to LSU, um, which in a way we were right in another way, it was an extremely, uh, difficult environment to try to heal in. 
Um, because you know, college athlete, your, your life's moving 90 miles an hour and there's a lot required of you and expected of you. And you're dealing, you're in, I called it the bayou of temptation. I mean, you're right back into, into a world of temptation, a world of people who are very much not in a season of life where they're really caring about anything else, but themselves. I mean, it's just true. It's college. You're figuring out your life path. You're in school. You're, you're figuring out yourself in a lot of ways. And the coaching staff was incredibly supportive. Um, they got me in with a grief counselor. They, they really, I remember my coach told me one day that I could miss as many practices cause it was just spring. Now, um, we were off season, but I could miss as many practices as I needed. He understood what I was going through. And I think I missed one practice and the next practice I stayed after myself and ran cause I just, um, like did extra. I think I just, I didn't want to like be this burden to anyone, you know, mm. I didn't want anyone to see how wounded I really was. And so, um, I moved back and, and, and it was just a mix. Some days were okay. Some days were horrific. Some days were numb. Some day it was just such a roller coaster ride. Um, but ultimately I was still running from God and I ran into any sin sized piece that I thought could fill the God sized hole in my heart. The enemy has a way of really messing with us in places of grief and hardship. And I think it's where you see a lot of addiction grow out of, um, because we just want to mask that pain. We just want to feel okay for a moment. Um, and when you've faced incredible loss or, you know, whatever it may be, you know, that, 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 pain doesn't leave. It just is, it's heavy. It's all the time and you get so fatigued. And so I really turned to anything that could just interrupt that pain for a moment and kind of numb me to the world. And, you know, that, that manifested in partying, it manifested in drinking, it manifested in promiscuity. I mean, it was just, it, I was, I was kind of like a machine. It was like, get in, give me my fix, get yeah. out. Get so in. What, now it's manic. Wow. So when you're you're going through this grieving that obviously you've never grieved probably like this in your entire life, uh, right. and you're walking through 2009, tell me about that process as you're getting more removed from that moment in January. You're getting into the spring and into the summer, and where where is your faith during this process, and then end up taking us all the way to what happens in November of 2009? Yeah. So I'm, I'm faith wise. I'm just really on the run, um, really indulging in anything I can, but also waking up emptier than I was the, you know, the day before and all of this. And they're all this while that I'm running all this while that, you know, I'm kind of in some seasons replacing my grief with my sport. You know, sometimes it was therapeutic to get back out on the soccer field and just kind of, that helped me kind of forget all the woes, Um, and other times I'm replacing my grief with really damaging things, you know, and other times I'm pouring into my athlete or my academics and, you know, replacing it with that. Really, it was just this year navigating what could help me forget. (laughs) And I'm growing deep down, um, hatred and resentment and darkness and, all the while that all of this is going on, I'm wrestling with this tension. It's, it's very hard to describe, but, um, I think I write in the book, it it felt like 
um, like the arms of a father who refused to let go of a thrashing child, like the arms of the father Mm. who refused to let go of my wandering soul. I was just feeling this unbelievable tension of, of knowing there was a better way, but it is so angry, so frustrated, so, you know, hurt by it that I was trying anything else, but it's almost like God just refuses to let go of our wandering rebellious souls. I mean, he just loves us and desires us and pursues us even in the midst of our mess. And so really the cry of my heart had been, God, just stop, just stop. If you're so real if you love me the way that, you know, everyone's telling me you love me and you'll heal and all these things, do something, reveal yourself to me somehow in a tangible, real, I can't miss it way. Mm. Because right now I'm wrestling with this tension, but I can't even ever really put my finger on what it is. I'm, you know, chasing all these other things, but they're not fulfilling me. I'm, you know, trying everything I can here. Just let's just stop. Really, I came to a place in my heart where I understood why my dad did what he did, and I saw it as a viable option for my own life. Wow. Because I was so fatigued. I was so sick of this tension, this back and forth, this overwhelming lack of any peace. And the cry of my heart really became, God, if you're so real, just wreck my life because I'm just tired of living it. And and if, if, if you're so real, reveal yourself in some way that I just can't miss it. And really... It was kind of just an arrogant prayer, but he hears our cries. Yeah. Like disclaimer, dangerous prayer to pray. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh, God wrecked my life. And I'm I'm then headed home for Thanksgiving break, really at a place of probably my deepest darkness, no matter how great I had become at that point in the year of wearing a different mask on the surface. Um, and I was headed home for Thanksgiving break with just that on my heart, just you know, you got to do something. God just wrecked my life. And, um, I was headed down the interstate at one 30 in the morning. Cause I'd been stuck in some traffic in Baton Rouge and, um, realized I, I was in the center median. I, my wheel was just cranking and jerking and I'm like, most snap out of it and try to pull my car back on the interstate. I'm just disoriented to what's going on. I shoot straight across the interstate, hit an embankment, flip my Jeep three times and landed upside down in a ravine oh. at one thirty in the morning, completely alone and completely physically broken. Um, I was hanging upside down by my seatbelt choking on blood. I remember when I woke up and, um, it was this moment people hear the story and they're like, good grief, another piece of adversity like this. Oh yeah. Yeah. But, but mind you, my prayer had been, God, if you're so real, do something. And it was hanging upside down in that car at 1.30 in the morning, completely alone, completely physically broken. Mind you, I had been emotionally broken one year prior. And now I just hung there really at the end of myself in so many ways. And I had never felt from that moment, I get goosebumps now. Maybe we should have video Skyped this so you could <laughs> I was I was never felt more overwhelmed and almost crushed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. It just flooded into my vehicle and God met me in that place in such an overwhelming, unfathomable way and just said, be still and know that I am God. You have a choice to make. I love you. I am with you. I am for you. 
that the enemy will wage battles. You must trust that I have won the war. I am using all for my glory. You have been died for. I mean, it was like the depths of the gospel were just instantaneously downloaded into my heart. Things I'd never heard in church before. Things deep like theological understanding. I had never been taught. It was just immediate, uh, like Paul on the road to Damascus, just God dropping me in that moment and revealing himself in all of his glory to me. And then saying to me, now choose, do you continue to allow the haphazard winds of life to hopefully blow your broken pieces back together? Or will you trust me as the master artist, the designer of your soul, the one who knits you together in your mother's womb? Will you trust me to rebuild you into a new creation? And will you give your life to me to use it from this point forward? And it was radical. I mean, it was just, there's, there's all that's the, happening in the car or, or right car, around that time. Down, hanging oh upside my, down in the car. My goodness. It was like, it was literally like the scales were just fell from my eyes. It was, it was unfathomable. I mean, I think sometimes we think we have to, you know, and, and granted, these are beneficial, but we think we have to go through weeks of study or the gospel has to pre be presented to us just right. Or we need to, you know, understand all of these deep things about the word of God before we can take a step to accept it. No, all it takes from God is a whisper. Mm. It takes a moment for him to encounter us. Um, when we ask him to, God, reveal yourself to me, and, and I can almost guarantee he will respond. Now, I'm not saying he, he'll throw your vehicle off the road at <laughs> 1.30 in the morning on the interstate, but he, he may. You know, he may wreck something in your life to open your eyes to him and to reveal the magnitude of his glory to you. Mm. And I'll say right now that wreck was brutal and the injuries were brutal, but I was brought from death to life in that car. I, my, my soul was saved in that place. And so injuries heal and you can buy a new car. Um, but we, we have moments in our life where we have the, the freedom to choose whom we will serve. And that choice can change everything. And that hole in my heart that it existed from the loss of my dad was like instantly filled. Granted, there was still, you know, processing to go through, but there was a peace that surpassed all understanding. There was a hope that was so incredible to me. There was one man that had been on the road a good ways behind me, and he had just vaguely seen my lights flicker. And he talked to my mom on the phone after the accident, and he told her that he just felt compelled to pull over and check out what it was. I mean, it was super late or hmm. super early, I guess. But the guy ends up being a retired paramedic and in the Navy, like of all people who could come across your wreck when you're in a ravine, like <laughs> that's what you want. <laughs> exactly. That's who you want. And he, he told my mom, he climbed down into the car with a flashlight and, and shined it into the car. And he was preparing himself to find a dead body because my car was just annihilated. Um, and he said he caught my face. I had somehow shimmied out of my seatbelt and I was on the roof of the car, which was, you know, on the ground. And, um, I was just smiling. <laughs> he was like, Oh God, like, how can we, uh, can you, can you move here? Can you try this? And he said, I just kept repeating the same words over and over. God is beautiful. God is beautiful. God is beautiful. And, and he's like, that's great. But if we could just get you, he's yeah. like me out of this vehicle. But I was overwhelmed by the completely captivating and healing presence of the Holy Spirit who encountered 
a wandering rebel like me and breathed life into my story. It was the most beautiful thing I had ever experienced. And it's all I could say. It's all I cared to say, I guess. And he told my mom, it looked like I had seen the most overwhelming sight. And all I cared to do would tell anyone who would listen about it. And for how many years now? What year is it? 2017? Yeah, almost eight Two years. That's all I've done from that point forward is tell anyone who will listen about the king who encountered me in that place and who is real and who is mighty to save and who is holy and sovereign. And even in our brokenness, even in our adversity, um, sees us and knows us and calls us out by name. And all it takes from him is a whisper. And all it takes from us is a choice. Wow. Will we Will we follow? Will we pick up our cross and carry it? And so now we're here. <laughs> Mo, that's amazing. I, I, I just, I, I'm amazed. I, I know this story and just listening to you remember it and tell it, just, it gives me goosebumps too. Um, we're talking to Mo Isom. She is the author of Wreck My Life, Journeying from Broken to Bold, obviously the title from everything you just described. I want to talk about the book for a minute. You detail, you know, everything that you just shared with us in the book, but where does the idea come from? I know that you know, you felt like you wanted to tell as many people about God as you could and come in contact with. But that's 2009. The book came out in 2016. So there's a six to seven year process. Where does the idea, did you ever th think you would be writing a book, I guess, as you started to understand how impactful your story was? And then where'd the idea come from? Yeah. So I always loved to write. I mean, even from a very young age, I wrote poems and songs and I, I, I really, really loved writing, but just never really had an avenue. I mean, outside of school projects to right. write with any type of impact. And so that's always just a love that I had, but I never like envisioned I would be an author. I mean, that just wasn't in, in my like plan, I guess, right. or in the picture. Um, I can but, relate. I can relate. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So the plans kind of change sometimes, huh? Yes, they do. Um, but after my car accident, after coming to know Christ, I felt an overwhelming, compelling urge to share. Um, and I think, you know, we can root it right back to scripture. It says sin is defeated by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimonies. So our stories carry incredible power and incredible weight. It's how, it's how God invites us into the gospel story. If you have a story of grace, you have a story of grace to be shared. And there is a compelling, or there was in me this compelling urge as soon as I came to know Jesus and came to know this new life. It's just, I couldn't be quiet about it. I, I had to share. And and so what um, God kind of welcomed me into at that time was he was just like, write it down. Tell what he said to my heart, which was very humbling and hard, but he said, tell everyone everything. Hmm. And I was like, um, excuse me. Right. <laughs> I've come out That's of this. That's not how we're wired. We don't like to tell I'm everybody sure. everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I want to tell everyone everything. Right. But he's like, tell everyone everything. And so I just started a blog in college. I mean, just literally a few weeks after my accident, I started um, like the most rudimentary WordPress, WordPress blog ever. And I just started it with like a 19 post testimony. I just 19 days in a row. I just wrote, I didn't know how to blog. I didn't know what I was doing. And by the end of that writing, there had been like 250,000 views. It was so crazy. It was, I literally thought I was just sharing details so that 
like our friends and family could know a little bit more about my dad's like loss because there was just, you know, around suicide, there's a lot of questions and no one wants to ask, but everyone's kind of curious. Um, and so I just thought I was writing this stuff. So a few close family members would see, but God had a lot bigger plans for that. Um, and, and it was amazing. And, And that didn't mean anything. I didn't like get a check in the mail for that amount of viewership or anything like that. It was just amazing to see, oh, wow, I love to write. Clearly people are enjoying reading how I'm writing. And so I'm just going to keep faithfully telling everyone everything. I'm just going to share what God's doing in my heart. And so I just started kind of blogging more regularly. And I will like put an asterisk next to that and say I'm the world's worst blogger because I like blog. And then like four months later, I'll blog again. Like I really need to work on it. You do a great job of sending out regular emails. I need to like take note. and. <laughs> Um, but I just, I always just did that with no reward, no return. I just wrote when God was stirring something on my heart. So fast forward several years of God really doing a lot of sanctifying in my life. So yes, I was on fire the moment I came to believe, but there was a lot that in the book actually talks about it. The whole second half of the book is all the things that God had to wreck in my life, had to continue to wreck and rebuild. So it was pride. It was arrogance. It was lack of forgiveness. It was, you know, uh, physicality, understanding like the weight of, of sexuality in many ways. I mean, there were just all these things that he had to wreck in my heart and rebuild by the truth of the word. And so I think if I had written a book immediately after it would have been a terrible book. I'm so glad it wasn't until 2016 that, um, that the story was published because there was a lot that God grew in my heart in that time and taught me. But it was amazing because, um, I posted when I got engaged to my husband, um, in 2014, I wrote this, this blog post that just randomly went so viral. It was called, um, I just got engaged and immediately doubted my decision. Here's why I still said yes. And it was just this blog post about the gospel. Really. It was breaking down the truth of, of, marriage and the truth of the gospel and how, you know, they are married to one another. And, um, it went crazy viral. And I got this email from a guy who's like, Hey, um, I represent authors. I don't know if you're already signed with someone or you're interested, but, um, I'd love to have a conversation. And he Mm -hmm. represents a lot of bloggers to authors. He works with like Ann Voskamp and different women like that. So I said, I, you know, I've, I love to write, so why not? And sort of opened up a relationship with him and it was amazing. I mean, he's fantastic. And we pulled together a proposal, shopped it out to the publishing houses. And this was the most amazing part of the whole process to me. So many um, of those publishing houses said, as soon as we got the proposal out to them, they were like, we have been waiting for this. We've been following Mo's blog since like 2010. Wow. All that time from 2010 to 2014, I didn't even know or care who was reading. Like I was, it was in no way like this promotion, you know, let me write this book. It was just writing when God said to and expecting nothing in return. And it turns out God had had eyes on it the whole time, um, which was just really special. And so we ended up signing with Baker, Baker Books and, um, signed a two book deal. So I'm working on my second right now, but, but I was going to ask you that we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Signed that first one, wrote it, um, found out I was pregnant like two days after we signed with them. So my little baby came to life while this book was coming to life. We just gestated together, uh, and then had a baby and, and published a book. And, um, again, that was just 
God taking it where he wanted it to go. The fact that it made New York Times is like stupid. Because well, that's I, what I was going to say. Like God taking it where he wants to take it. And you're a New York Times bestselling author. I mean, what is that like? That's awesome. Do you know what that looked like on release date? That looked like a baby latched to my body like a barnacle. <laughs> completely incapable of doing all that I needed to do, like social media wise. And, you know, so much promotion nowadays is on the shoulders of the author. So sort true. of how our times are. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot that's required of you. And I was so insufficient. I couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't balance it all. I I knew that God had like linked these seasons together of new motherhood and of authorship, but I just, I was not capable on my own. And I think that is the greatest thing because he is fully capable. He just calls us to obedience and he invites us into the story, but God doesn't need us in the story. He involves us for beautiful reasons, but he does what he is going to do. He is sovereign. He is holy. He sees the bigger picture. And so it was literally by the grace of God and by this, by the work of God's own hands that that thing spread like wildfire and that people scooped it up. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, there's no plaque that comes for New York times. There's no check in the mail. It's just a cool, it's just a cool honor, but it was a really cool honor. Mainly. You got to get business cards now. New York times, bestselling author. I know I can put that on the cover of my next book. So maybe that matters. Exactly. (laughs) There you go. A couple more minutes left here with Mo Isom. Again, the author of the book wreck my life here on the sports spectrum podcast. I got to tell you, I shared your book with a, with a teen girl in our church last year. Uh, and upon finishing it, she came up to me and, and thanked me, obviously, for giving her the book. But she said she was truly inspired by her story. Now, she didn't go into more detail than that. She's probably a 16-year-old teen. But has that been something you've kind of seen in this journey, this journey as an author, from the people reading the book, particularly from young females? Yeah, it's it's really amazing because I think the hope of any Christian author is that, that – I read an awesome quote one time that said, our desire would be that people would – put down our book and want to pick up God's. Oh, wow. Yeah. The last thing I really want is someone to just think Mo Isom's story is cool. You know, I want people to read and feel and know and invite in that same God to do work in their own hearts, you know, in response. So it's always so flattering when people love the story, but it's amazing when people, you know, say this inspired me so deeply and now dot, 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 and like fill in with what God's doing in their life or like how he worked in their hearts through that. And it's just really special to see because it just proves the scripture true that there is power in the word of our testimonies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this fake it till you make it culture to rewind all the way to back to the start of our talk, it's amazing to see when you do kind of just show those vulnerabilities in the darkness, when you don't worry anymore about this faked perfection, but you just, you know, bear the dirty laundry, how many people, how how much community it creates and people saying, I went through the same thing, or I would have never thought that like God heard me or saw me in this or that people like read the story and grab onto chunks that resonate with them. And it, it's amazing the doors that opens for conversation about what Jesus has the power to do in our lives. Mm. And, um, so it's amazing. I, yeah, the millennial female feedback is probably some of the strongest that I've gotten um, through the whole process. And, and I love it because imagine. It's yeah. a special generation, you know, and, and um, I love seeing God just use my messiness to to help other 
other girls and other people in general. All right. So Mo, I, and I'm doing this, this is almost a selfish question for me because I am a dad of a daughter, Sarah. <laughs> she's going to be 13 very soon. By the time people listen to this, she may already be 13. She's playing sports. She loves softball. She's walking with the Lord and she goes to youth group and she loves God. But man, those pressures of just fitting in and just being a part of people's expectations and pressures that are called upon and having to be cool and all this other stuff. What would you say to someone like my daughter, if you were talking to her about just how to balance and navigate through faith at that such a young age where you're still trying to fit in with the world? Yeah. Um, my words will be a little blunt to start. Uh, <laughs> But I would I tell like her, it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just hogwash. Yeah. It's just all the people that are putting all the pressure on her are trying to figure out who they are at the same time. And if you are being influenced by people who are trying to figure out who they are and you forget whose you are, then you're just um, mixing yourself back in with the masses you know, scripture says when we put our faith in Christ, we are literally plucked from the world and we're seated at the right hand of God through Christ Almighty. And I just think I love, love, love seeing young people and young girls who desire and who push through the pressures to live by the word rather yeah. than living by the world. It is so easy. It is so common. It's honestly so boring to see people all playing the same game and living by what the world says is cool. And if you pay any attention, that changes about every two weeks. So it's a constant it's a constant race you're trying to keep up with as a young person to stay in what's cool and what's, you know, desirable and what makes you cool and all these things. I don't care about what makes you cool. I care about what makes us holy. Mm, that's so good. And I, the, the sooner we grab a hold of that and the sooner we stand firm in confidence of that, knowing whose we are and knowing what God says about us and knowing what he calls from us in response, girl, you will be a light that can't be hidden. You will just be a city on a hill that people see. It's, it's honestly amazing right now at this season of life. The number of Facebook inboxes I get from people who honestly were the ones putting pressure on me in different seasons of life. They're the same ones reaching out saying like, what is this hope that you have? Like, it's amazing seeing what you're doing, or I can't believe, you know, this has happened for you. Tell me about it. They're the same ones seeking, um, what you already right now at 13 know to be true. Wow. So I would just say, hold on tight to that. And you know, the waves will crash and the winds will rage. Um, but if you can stand firm, and rooted in the truth of God, that truth is never changing and it's never failing and it will never leave you or forsake you. But the world will do all of the above. <laughs> it will change, it will leave you, it will abandon you, it will flip on you before you know it. Yeah. Uh, stand firm, be proud, be strong, be confident, um, and, and God will respond in beautiful ways in your life. Mo, one last question, actually two more, I'm sorry. Thank you so much for hanging with me on this. This has been of really course. great. Um, tell me about the next book. You're writing a new book. Uh, What's that going to be about? Yeah. My, my, my manuscript is due May 1st. I think it's set to come out spring 2018. Okay. Um, it's called Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot. Ooh. And it, yeah, it's a, the title, I think, is, is an eyebrow raiser. Um, 
but it really is um, a beautiful blend, sort of like Wreck My Life, of narrative and of like kind of breaking down principle and teaching. Um, but really of, um, in so many ways, my testimony as a woman, um, and my sexual testimony, and it, it breaks down what God, you know, initially sort of the arc of the book is what God intended for sex and intends for us as men, as women, um, as his children and the beauty in it and the act of worship that it is in the right context um, but then all the ways that we twist it and pervert it and have forgotten that and have lost it and the ways that it harms us, um, which is so my testimony, because I did not know really the rooted why of purity. Um, I just held on to that, you know, banner of virginity and they're very different things, um, but gave a lot of myself away in the process. And, you know, the book finally arcs down to God's beautiful redemption, even through all of that even through our mess and through our wandering and through our struggles, um, how God brings it all back home through Jesus and, um, in the beauty of marriage. And so it's a bold one. I just made it sound really soft and pretty, but it's, it's, a, it's bold and it's been really hard to write. So if you guys could be praying this next month that I get these words out, um, it's just, my hope is that especially millennials will read it and it will just make them start to think yeah. themselves about the root of this all and the brokenness that grows out of it when that is, when it's out of context, you know, and the ways that our society is so lost with it all, but yet elevates it and praises it. And, um, I don't know. I just hope people will read and relate to just raw, honest testimony, but also really start to assess in their own lives why they're doing what they're doing, um, what it roots back to and what, what God has the power to do through it to restore it. Wow. Um, yeah. That's so, awesome. Can't wait. 2018, the book's coming yeah. out. That's that's exciting, Mo. So cool. All right. My last question, I ask this to everybody who's on the podcast, and it's simply, what is the one thing that you are learning from God right now? What is that one thing? Oh, that's great. Um, I am learning. He whacked me over the head with this on the flight the other day. Um, I am learning that we are people, myself included, who so desperately chase purpose. But our purpose is very clearly defined in Scripture. It's the same for every single one of us that would believe so that we would experience the power of God and that we would go um, and, and make that, that power known. You know, we go and make disciples and share the gospel. That is our purpose, no matter where we are, no matter what season of life, whether we're at ESPN or whether we're taking a courageous leap into ministry ourselves, whether we're a housewife folding laundry or whether we're, um, you know, an executive in a boardroom, our purpose remains the same. Um, what we're actually seeking, and this is what he's teaching me, is peace. If you look, we, we claim it's purpose, but I think actually it's peace. Um, cause Jesus is not the Prince of purpose. He was the Prince of peace and we're not called to a purpose that surpasses all understanding. We're called to a peace that surpasses all understanding. And I think a lot of the times myself included, but as believers, we're running around like chickens with our heads cut off, chasing purpose when, um, we should be the ones who navigate life no matter where we are, what we're doing with, with assured purpose and with a calm and confident peace. And that's what sets us apart. So I'm really trying to lean into that. I'm trying to navigate with more peace and realize that that is what um, his light will shine through, a confidence no matter where I am and, and, and what I'm doing, that he is in it and he is for us and we can just rest in that peace and 
do what we're doing with excellence. Mm. So that's, that's so good. Learning. <laughs> Thank you, Mo, so much. Now, best way yeah. to pe best way for people to get in touch with you. How how can they get in touch with you? Sure. Yeah, I'm on social media. Um, I, I love Instagram. So at Mo Isom, I'm on Twitter and Facebook too. All of that is is Mo Isom. Um, but I also have a website, MoIsom.com. And if they have speaking requests or um, if they just want to email about something with a question, um, all of that contact information is on MoIsom.com, as well as great video content and writings. And again, disclaimer: I'm the world's worst blogger, so don't look. <laughs> post but i occasionally pop some great stuff up there <laughs> no it is i've been there many times and it's moisom.com definitely check it out there's lots of great stuff on there her story mo your story your testimony it's just been awesome to listen to thank you so much for coming on i know we spent almost an hour here talking but man it's just such good stuff so thank you so much for spending the time here with me on the sports spectrum podcast i really appreciate it thank you and thank you for doing this you're doing a great great work all right that was mo isom what a story Mo Isom oh. has. That's all I can say. And that voice you just heard is our director of digital and media at Sports Spectrum and Pro Athletes Outreach. It is Raymond St. Martin. Raymond, just initial thoughts on hearing Mo's story. Wow. That was a master class for young women. I mean, I have, I have four daughters myself, and I literally would love it if they could do life with Mo. Yes. I mean, not only is she beautiful. I mean, she was the homecoming queen at LSU. Not only is she an amazing athlete, she set all the records for goalkeeping at LSU, but now she's an author who's sharing her life and her faith. And she's a devoted mother, a devoted wife. I mean, wow, what a woman. Yeah, I mean, she's exactly who I want my daughter to, I would say maybe become, but also to be around on a daily basis to have somebody like that just pouring into her and showing her the model. And it's funny because, you know, you and I were talking before we started taping this and, you know, the 18 or 19 year old Mo Isom might not be somebody that you want around your daughter or my daughter just because she was going through such brokenness and such turmoil and such such a struggle with her battle with faith and then all the other things going on in her life. Mm -hmm. I think it is. I mean, when you look at her brokenness in that time period and then her moment, you know, like I believe we all have a moment. There's a moment where we met Jesus, like to be followers of Jesus. And to have her moment so soon after, you know, her father killed herself and within the year and to be hanging upside down in that car and to to meet him <laughs> and then to dedicate her life to him there from that moment forward just is so powerful. I mean, when you talk about a testimony, we talk about, you know, a woman discipling women, no matter what you come to me with, you're going to be, yeah, you're not going to understand me because, you know, my dad was abusive. They're not going to understand me because my dad died when I was young. Right. They're not going to understand me because I, well, don't let the outside fool you. Like, this is me. Like, this is what I've been through. This is my story. And that's really where we can meet so many people is we, we, like, meet them in our brokenness. And then we show them the answer and the truth. And, like, how could you possibly be so happy when all of that has happened to you in your life and we get a chance to point to Jesus? Yeah, I mean, you heard me kind of laughing. Like, how are you sitting upside down in a car wreck, basically possibly getting ready to die and looking at the guy who comes to rescue you, you know, this man who's on the side of the road and smiling at him? Like, where does that come from? But that's, it comes from Jesus and only him. That's the amazing thing. And the spirit that he gave her, I mean, he, he, he created her to be an all-in person. Hmm. 
you know, whatever she did in her story, she was all in. Yeah. I'm going to start a blog and become a writer. I'm going to play soccer and I'm going to get a scholarship. I'm going, whatever, whatever she's done. I mean, I'm going to try out for the men's football team at LSU. I mean, right. she was, she was one cut away from being a female kicker in division one football. Yeah. I mean, I mean we didn't not even get to that. That's amazing. Yeah. Her story was so good that there was so much we couldn't even get to. Yeah, just such a great, I think, you know, it's hard to have a, a role model or a model in our life that's not Jesus, but to have somebody in your life that can point you to Jesus like her for any woman, I just, I mean, in, any women that are listening to this, any dads out there, I mean, I don't, I never do this, but I'd say get her book, you know, mm -hmm. share it with your teenage daughter and just, man, like, it's so good that we have technology now where you could feel like you're doing life alongside somebody. And someone like Mo is someone I would trust with my daughters. Yes, Raymond, it's such a powerful testimony. Thank you so much. And as always, you can leave us a review on iTunes. That would be awesome. Subscribe there, download the podcast, listen to us, and leave a review. Let us know how we're doing. It helps get the word out. It really does on getting awareness for this podcast out to as many people as possible. So please do leave a review on iTunes. You can reach us directly at sportspectrum.com as well as tweeting at us on Twitter at sports underscore spectrum or directly to me at Jason Romano, J-A-S-O-N-R-O-M-A-N-O. And, you know, most story brings it up. Like what, it makes me think, what is your wreck my life moment? You know, what was that moment where Jesus wrecked your life, where he came in and he said, you know what? I'm Lord and I want to help you. I want to love you. I want to take care of you. I want to be your savior. What is that wreck my life moment look like? for you next week on the podcast we will be joined by cleveland browns linebacker demario davis demario has a great story he had a great first season with cleveland last year in a season that the team went just one in 15 but he talks about that season and how we all view it as one in 15 he looks at it as a real positive and it'll be interesting to hear why and i'm really excited for you to hear about his testimony his story of faith but also Making that decision to leave the New York Jets in free agency and join the Cleveland Browns is a powerful testimony to being faithful to God. So Demario Davis is our guest next week on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Again, my name is Jason Romano. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time.